I'm going to throw a question at you as we start. Uh, what do these, what do these three groups, not three groups, six groups of uh, individuals have in common? It may, may be hard to see at first, but uh, so stay with me. Um, uh, you're, you're broke. Uh, as Dave Ramsey would say, you've not just got an income problem, but an expense problem. You're broke, and the bills are just piling up. Or maybe a different group. You're, you're, you're well off, but you just want more. Um, maybe you're single, wanting to be married, and the prospects as you get older are getting thin. Uh, maybe you're married, though. It's a couple. You're wanting and waiting for a child. Nothing's happening. You're a high school senior. Uh, you're applying to schools, maybe getting into a few. Maybe you've gotten into all of the ones you wanted to, but you can't afford to go. Uh, maybe you're a senior of a different kind, a senior citizen. And up to this point in your life, your, your health has been pretty good. And now it just seems like everything is breaking down. What are those groups of people, seemingly so different and disparate, what do those groups of people all have in, in common? Likely a struggle with contentment. Likely a, a struggle with, with resting and being at peace with the Lord's care and control uh, over their lives. And, and likely also therein struggling with the poison of discontentment that floods and bleeds into every other aspect of your life. So what do you do? Where do you go? Look into God's Word and to see what He has to say to us in this. Uh, it is profound. It is so beautifully helpful. Uh, and we need it more than we know. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the letter to this church in first century Philippi as Paul is writing from imprisonment in Rome. Um, if you're trying to find it, uh, this is New Testament. This is in the kind of middle point of the, that collection of Paul's letters there in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels and after Acts, the narrative portion of the New Testament. And then after Romans and First and Second Corinthians and uh, the uh, let's see, what are the Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 4. We are really very much on the home stretch. Uh, the plan is this is the second to the last uh, in the series. Uh, so next week would then be the last. And uh, uh, I got some ideas as to what's coming next, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, just reading on through verse 13. That's enough. That's enough uh, for us to chew on here just for a few minutes together this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Verses 10 through 13. Hear now God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. 
you pray with me? Lord, surely there is not a man, woman, or child in this room uh, that doesn't need to hear something of, of what contentment is and how it can be and why it should be and what it looks like and uh, how it is found in you. And we ask that you would teach us. Um, Paul knew something of, of the struggle, certainly in his own heart as a, as a pastor. Uh, he knew something, of course, of uh, the struggle of these people that he is writing to. Uh, they needed it. We need it. Uh, so it's not just in Philippi in the first century. It's in it's Clarksville in the in the 21st century. And you haven't changed. The needs haven't changed. You haven't changed. Your word does not change. Uh, and you are so good to us and so merciful. And we ask that you would teach us and shape us and push us further along. We ask in your name. Amen. So I'm just going to dive right in here. Um, when, what does Paul mean when he says he, has, he is content? He has learned to be content. What does he mean? When, what is this thing that he is speaking of there in, in verse 11? And he has learned to be in, in whatever situation, uh, or verse 13, in any and every circumstance. What, what is this that he is talking about? Well, literally the word actually could roughly be translated self-sufficient. That's what he has learn to be. But what is when Paul uses that word, what does he mean by it? Does he mean he's an island? Does he mean he's, you know, unplugged and he's, you know, the rugged individualist? No, that's that's not it at all. Paul is not when he says that he has learned what it is to be content, he, and he is of course modeling something at that and, and imploring his readers to seek after that. He is not speaking of being detached from circumstances. That is not what he's talking about. He is not talking about being detached or removed from circumstances and the situations in his life. He is not advocating stoicism. Actually, the word that he is using here, he is robbed from the first century Stoics. This is a word that they would have used to describe their position. Um, but Paul has stolen it from them and is redefining it uh, for, for us as, as Christians. He is, so what he is saying is... is by using it, and is using it as a, in a sense of a contrast, he is saying, look, I'm not speaking here of a style of life that is just ultra-rational and is distancing oneself, you know, arm's length, nothing's going to touch me because I'm just going to outthink it. Now, for you sci-fi fans, this would be Mr. Spock. And I have a quote for you, in case you were wondering. I do, yes. Um, this is from the original Star Trek, the better one. Um... In a conversation between uh, Mr. Spock, not Dr. Spock, please, people, um, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy about violence, the ever-logical, mostly logical Vulcan said this, speaking of his race of Vulcans, we disposed of emotion, doctor. Where there is no emotion, there is no motive for violence. You hear it? The distancing. It can't touch me. It can't touch me. Do you think Paul was a Stoic? Can you read just the letter to the Philippians and come away thinking that Paul was a Stoic? No, my friends. The man felt and felt passionately and deeply. His heart bled for sorrow for the people that he loved and cared for and leaped and exulted for joy for them 
when that was appropriate as well. Paul was no stoic, but neither was he, I'm going to go to the other extreme, neither was he, I'll just say, a, a Buddhist. You see, the, the, the Stoic, it takes the ultra-rational approach. The, the Far Eastern religions, and I'll just say Buddhism in particular, it takes a, a, a more mystical approach. It's not so much distancing oneself from reality, but denying reality. The pain's not real. It's just an illusion. And you need to achieve a higher state. And as you do that, you then will be content and peace because what you think is bothering and troubling you is not real. Now again, sci-fi fans, I have an example for you. Yoda, the Jedi Master. And in a conversation between the little green dude and uh, Anakin Skywalker, this is what he says. And I won't do the imitation, though I'm tempted. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Do you see? So you have to deny. The Stoic says you have to distance yourself. The, the uh, mystic says you have to um, distance, deny what's going on. Um, Paul is not saying, he's saying completely, emphatically no to both of those approaches in terms of what it is to be content. It's not that we are to become detached from our circumstances. What Paul is saying is that we are not to become dependent on our circumstances, and that's a very, that's not just a wordsmithing kind of thing. That is a crucial distinction. We are not, he's not calling for detachment, he is calling for just simply not being dependent. It's, it's in many ways what Paul is saying here in verses 10 through 13 is much like what he's been saying all through this letter. Contentment is linked to joy. And, and joy is a refrain that, that well, as refrains do, is Paul comes back to it again and again and again through this, this letter. He commands joy. Be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember back in verse 4, you can see it there in, in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's not an option. This thing called joy, or you know, really we could say to be contented as, as well. It's, it's not for a select few. Um, okay, I'm going to push a little further and say, as hard as this is for us to grasp, contentment and joy are not necessarily mutually exclusive from suffering and pain. The two can coexist at the same time because of what we're talking about when we talk about biblical Christian contentment and joy. The two can coexist, or I'll put it a different way. Contentment, the birth of contentment or the thriving of contentment and joy does not have to wait on life being just so. That's not the way it works. That's not the way, that's not what Paul is, is writing up here. Well, okay, we need a definition, don't we? Uh, what are we talking about? Um, you've got in your quotes and notes a short little uh, quote down there at the bottom from Jeremiah Burroughs. This is a, a classic Puritan writer. Uh, he's writing there in the 17th century. This, and the, the title alone is worth the cost of the book from his little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And this is the definition that he gives. I think it's so good. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Maybe I should read that again. There's a lot there, isn't there? Let's read that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. That is what Paul has, has learned. Uh, what he's telling us here is that God calls and enables us to be content. God calls and enables us to be content. And such a life, as Jer to use the words of Jeremiah Burroughs, is indeed a rare jewel. Such a life is indeed a rare jewel. Now there's a couple of things I want to just uh, pursue together for the next few minutes. Some things we learn about this jewel. Now I'm mixing the metaphors because you can't really talk about jewels don't grow. They're not, you know, they, they don't fit in the, in the category of botany. But anyway, bear with me. Roots and fruits. Where does contentment come from? What is its root? That's the first question. And the second question following up is, where does it lead to? What is its fruit? Okay, so root and fruit. Um, that's where we're heading for the, just the next few minutes. So what is the, the root of contentment? Where does, that's the first thing. Where does it come from? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm just going to come out and say uh, we, we need to uh, clear the ground here, uh, disabuse ourselves of any delusions of some of the foolishness that has been spoken over the years about what verse th 13 is about. Um, Paul in no way is talking about himself. Uh, there's not a self-focus to this at all. He is not for himself claiming great strength or ability. If you've ever read anything from the Apostle Paul, you know that time and time again, he exalts in his, if, if you will, his comparative to what the, what the world says about him, foolishness and weakness. He exalts in being weak that Christ then, his Christ's strength would be shown through him. There's no boasting about this man in himself whatsoever. He's not claiming any great strength and he is not aiming at any selfish agenda. Jesus is Lord for Paul. Now, you've got to understand what that means for a former Pharisee, a man schooled in the Old Testament. To say Jesus is Lord is the equivalent of saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one who appears to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is the one who led the Israelites, in essence, through their desert wanderings in the Exodus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. So Jesus is everything to Paul. Everything else falls below and bows down. And, so, and, and, and sits beneath Jesus. In terms of Paul's aspirations and desires and longings and goals and everything, everything is for Paul. Christ 
So when Paul writes in verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, that is not a motivational slogan. It is not a bumper sticker. It's not a t-shirt. It's not a thing to put on your coffee mug. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, but it's not. It's not. It's not the thing to, tr to just bring out when we're about to take on some great project or, in hindsight, we've achieved some great feat. It's not the thing that we hear sadly, well-meaning, but deluded celebrities and athletes trumpet out and say, I, can, I did it through Jesus. I, I hit that high note and got this trophy. I threw that, that sharp, straight pass. We won the game because Jesus strengthened me. That's not the kind of shallow, self-focused thing that Paul is talking about here. Not at all. It's so much deeper, so much more significant than that. Again, Paul is about Christ. Paul is about the pursuit of Christ. The man, why is he in Rome? He is imprisoned for the gospel. And, he, and that was a process, if you go back and read the book of Acts, was something that was set in motion years before. Jesus is Lord for the apostle. He wrote in chapter 1 about he doesn't care, about how his, his rivals are succeeding and, and at his reputation's expense. He doesn't care as long as Jesus is preached and the gospel is spread. He, he says later on that he doesn't, to live or die is Christ. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's fine either way because it's Christ. Christ is his, his center, his true north. It's about the pursuit of Christ. It's about trusting Christ. I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but just think with me logically here. Verse 13 does follow from verse 12, does it not? So perhaps we could say context might determine something of what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's likely, no, actually it's certain, that he's referring back to the things that he has just talked about. What are the all things? The all things being being brought low and yet abounding, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What Paul is saying is that no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, the man has learned to be content. In whatever circumstances that God puts him in, he will do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with his God. He is content. Why? Because he knows that the one who sends him to a myriad of different situations, in this case, in prison, will give him the strength to be and to do what he has been called to be and to do, and in that he rests. That is the sense in which he says, I can do all things. I can rest content in whatever happens to me through Christ. Through Christ, who strengthens me. My friends, we need that more than throwing the straight pass or hitting the high note of the pretty trophy. We need, in all circumstances, to learn what it is to rest content in Christ's care for us. That's what we need. So what is the root? What is the root of contentment? It's Jesus. Relying on Jesus, turning to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, continually and in everything. 
from sun up to sun down. Now, this is a promise. It's for us too. It's not just for apostles. This is a promise for us that, that we too can learn and, and grow in what it is to be content. It's, it's possible for any follower in any circumstance. It, Paul, years before, wrote a circular letter, meaning it was not round, but it was passed from church to church, a province of Galatia. The book of Galatians, in Galatians 5, he talks about the, what, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. I've got to count it off. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I did it. Okay. He talks about these things as being possible and really necessary marks in the life of every Christian, no matter how high or low or pretty or ugly or left or right their circumstances may be. Now, how can that be because of Christ? As we're leaning into Him as our strength and our, every, our everything, right? The song we sang a little while ago. How is that? Well, I mean, Colin even preached a sermon about this a few weeks ago. By looking to Jesus as the vine, we are branches. We abide in the vine. We find our life in the vine to be and to do what He has called us to be and to do. Again, God calls us, enables us to be content. And that is a rare jewel indeed. That's the first point. Second point. Where does it come from? What's its root? Christ. Where does it lead? What does it bring about? What is the fruit? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The fruit of contentment is gratitude. A heart of thanksgiving. That is what flows out of this heart of contentment. Paul speaks of gratitude to others, gratitude to these people, gratitude to this church there in Philippi, these people that he knew and loved so well. He says, now look, I want you to understand, it's not that I was in need. I'm not in need. i got to tell you, when you think about Paul's circumstances, would you have said that in, in, imprisoned in, in Rome? This is not an Amnesty International certified situation. Um, I mean, I get bent out of shape when my coffee is weak. I get bent out of shape when my computer doesn't boot up fast enough. You know, or somebody drove my car and didn't put gas in the tank. I think, now I'm in need! And Paul redefines that for us, what it really is. And he says, and I, I'm, I'm fine, but thank you. I'm so grateful. Now, what is he grateful for then? Well, not the stuff, not the supplies, not the correspondence, but it's, it's their heart expressed. It's the, the concern that they have shown for his welfare, their ongoing partnership with him in the gospel, that he is so, so thankful for, which then takes you to the next thing, and it's not, because behind that, it's behind the gratitude that he's showing towards these people is the gratitude that he has to God, because that's the only thing that explains this partnership that they share in the gospel. These Gentiles, you know, out there in Philippi with this former Pharisee who would have just assumed never have had anything to do with him in his, you might say, his prior life. And they're yoked together 
He speaks in there in verse 10, a rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Why? Their fellowship. We talked about this way back weeks ago in chapter 1. Their fellowship, the kononia, their shared relationship in Christ, their shared partnership in Christ. They're bound together in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. So what's the root again? What's the source of? What's the origin of? Where does this contentment come from Christ? What's its fruit? Where does it lead to? What does it bring about? Gratitude. Thanksgiving. Which begs the question for all of us here, beginning with the guy up front. It begs the question of all of us here, are you grateful? Is your life typified by a pattern of thankfulness? give you some examples, try and roll this out from a, in a practical way. All right? Your children keep outgrowing their clothes. Right? It's back to school time. It's, it's just, you're almost done with the tax-free weekend, by the way. Just a public service announcement. Um, your children keep outgrowing the clothes and you're wondering, my gosh! I mean, now, let me ask you something. Are you, is it possible for you to be thankful for those children? Is it possible for you to be thankful for the health that causes them to grow? Is it possible for you to be thankful for the food that, you've, that God has given you to put on that table that therein has caused the growth? Just, just thinking. Okay, your health, it's not as good as you wish, but you, maybe you've got a diagnosis, so at least you know what it is, right? The doctor has been able to pinpoint it. He's been able to tell you this is what it is. And so is that, is that a cause for some gratitude with that? And, and the fact that we live where we do in the 21st century West with so many different options as how to treat so many different things, is that also not possibly a cause for gratitude? Or you've got a relationship struggle. If something's blown up between you and a friend or a sibling or a parent or you know, fill in the blank. We are sinners, so it happens. Um... Is it possible for you to be grateful knowing that as you lean into Jesus through this thing, he's going to work in your heart? You're going to learn more about the gospel through this. You're going to learn more as you move through the difficulty and the choppy waters of your own repentance, owning what you've done, even if it's 10%, probably more, um, and, and confession and extending forgiveness, is it possible there's grounds for gratitude even in that because of how you're going to become more like Jesus through that? I could not back up again and say, okay, so if, if you're, I threw out the question, are you thankful, are you grateful? If really you'd have to say no, then what does that tell you? See, remember I said that, that gratitude is the fruit of contentment. Okay, so if you're contented, that will flow out in gratitude, okay? But what if you've gone to the spring and it's nothing there? It's dried up. What does that tell you? You're not grateful because you're not contented. Does that make sense? The one leading to the other? So what do you need to do? 
need to go back. You need to go back to the basics. The very, very basics. It's another quote in your quotes and notes. I want to read it with you. Um, the very first one. The Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer number one. Um, foundational, not just for the catechism itself, which is so beautifully rich, but I would argue for our lives as well. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. My friends, if, if, you're, if, if the springs run dry, there is a well, there's a way to get the water flowing again. Go to Christ. Lean into Him. Let Him remind you of who He is and all that He is for you and all that you are for Him. That your, your passion for Him might grow anew and afresh again because you're catching a new, fresh glimpse of His passion for you. And may we grow in contentment. Let me pray. Lord, we do struggle here more than we would like to admit. Um, your care for us and control over our lives, as much as we may profess that and talk about it and sing about it, at times it's just hard to see. Um, the timing throws us. And there are times it's just hard to rest in this care. It's, it's hard to be content. And you know that. You know that very well of us. And we thank you for your mercy. We pray that you would be yet more merciful to us. Would you enable what you have commanded, that our hearts would be hearts of contentment rooted in Christ, overflowing in gratitude. We belong to You, Jesus. You have ransomed and redeemed us. You are always guarding and protecting us, ever guiding and providing for us, us and those we care for. And this is indeed a rare jewel, this Christian contentment. It is unlike any other thing. And so we pray that You would work it into us, that it would flow out of us and help us to encourage each other in these things. Amen. Let me ask my...